Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning, as always. I'm just uh, excited to open the Word with you. If you think about it, you might say a prayer like, I've just got a little bit of a scratchy throat today, made it through the 9, okay, but we'll see how it holds up here at 11. If you were here with us last weekend, you know we started looking at this book of Isaiah. We're going to be studying it for the next couple of weeks yet. And I think for a lot of us, if, now be honest, if you read through the Bible, it's like you get the major prophets, you're like, Ugh. you know, it's like biblical flyover country, right? Oh, Ezekiel, just let it be over or something like that. Maybe it's not your favorite to read. I don't know. When we do read it, I think part of the reason we don't get as much out of it is because we don't understand what it's really telling us. And so hopefully we're going to put an end to that a little bit with this series. But I think if you look at the book of Isaiah, there are some great, rich, wonderful passages. We're looking at some, some ones here in this series, but there's great stuff elsewhere. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 53, one of the greatest in all the Bible. Chapter 66, just to name a few. So as we look into the book, I hope you're going to see something that's going to give you some new insights into God and his mission in the world. Now, I bet here in this room, most of us have taken a history class somewhere along the way, right? High school or college. Maybe some students, maybe you're in a class like that now. I remember at the University of Akron, you had to take world history and, and Western civilization. There was required classes. And and my friends with moaning ground, oh, I got Western civilization today, oh, you know. And maybe you felt like them and it just wasn't your favorite. Now, for me, I like history. See, I'm a guy that loves a good story, and really, history is just one big, long story, right? And I think when you look at history, you see a lot about how people really haven't changed a lot over the centuries. Even if there's been technological advancement and such that shape things, people are still people. Now, maybe you've heard this saying before. Those that fail to learn from history are what? Doomed to repeat it. Exactly. Why do I remember that quote? Because it's true, I think, right? I mean, I think we, we'd all agree with the wisdom behind it. Hey, we all, you know, it's good to learn from our mistakes, but isn't it better to learn when the other guy makes a mistake? <laughs> Now, for those of us that study the Bible, if you follow Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you my own corollary to this. Yes, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But I'm going to say this. Those that fail to learn from history will miss seeing God at work in the world. See, human history isn't just this collection of random various things that people have done it's not unfolding in some haphazard way despite the fact that god has given people free will god still works to shape human history and we're going to see that today so we're going to dig into the word so grab your bible of choice and get your study guide out now a lot of times i'd say hey the scripture is going to be on your study guide but it's not because there isn't room for it because <laughs> we're going to look at all of isaiah chapter 41 it's 29 verses so you can follow along. We're going to read a bit of it at a time as we go through this. We're not going to read the whole thing together. Now, before we get going in that, let's peek ahead a little bit because I want to start and establish something. Who is talking here in Isaiah 41? We're going to peek ahead at verse 4 where it says this. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. 
So it's God who is speaking. In verses 8, 10, 13, 17, and 21, all reinforce that fact. So God's talking here, and he's issuing a challenge. So let's look at verse 1. Isaiah 41, verse 1. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Now, here God says the islands should keep silent before him. Or some translations, maybe your Bible says coastlands. That same word is translated more broadly in some other places in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 97, verse 1, the same word is translated as distant shores. It's really conveying the idea of like distant lands, other countries. And then the next phrase uses the word nations. And this is more talking not just about other countries, but the people of those nations. The people of the world, really. So God is issuing this challenge. He's calling the nations, the peoples of the world, in particular his enemies, to a debate. It's as if he's challenging them to come to a courtroom, the place of judgment, it says, and try the case between himself and the powers of the world. Now, last week in Isaiah 40, we saw God offering comfort to his people by talking about his, his power and his care for them. And I think, really, Isaiah 41 is doing the same thing. It's just taking a completely different approach to it. He's contrasting his power to that of his enemies. So exhibit one. In verse two, God offers into evidence a historical event. Verse two, it says, Who has stirred up the one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with a sword to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. So here God says he's behind this important historical event. He raised up a king from the east to serve his purposes. This king is going to conquer other kings, but it's God that handed those other kings over to the king from the east. And God's real clear in this. This isn't just some chance occurrence in history. God says he did this. He carried it through. So who is this king? Most scholars agree, and there's really not a lot of debate about it. This is talking about Cyrus the Great, king of Persia. He was the king from about 576 to 530 B.C., and Persia is located right about where modern-day Iran is. Now, Cyrus didn't just rule Persia, but his kingdom ultimately included much of the Middle East, all the way from you know, Western Asia, Central Asia, all the way from the Mediterranean Sea on the one side to the Indus River in India on the other side. And just as God said in Isaiah 41, God allowed Cyrus to subdue all these other kings before him. Now, Cyrus is notable in the Bible because in the very first year of his rule, he issued a decree that the Jews would be able to return to Israel and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He even sent them back with sacred artifacts that had been taken from the original temple, and he gave them funding and building materials to do the work. The Bible dedicates a whole book to talking about this project, the book of Ezra. 
So I'm going to read the first four verses of Ezra in chapter 1. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold and with goods and livestock with freewill offerings for the temple of the God in Jerusalem. And there's a lot more about this project in Ezra that you can look at. Now, I want us to notice the sequence here. Last week, we talked a little bit. Pastor Steve mentioned it in Isaiah 39. God told Judah, you're going, your nation's going to be sacked, and the Jewish people, you're going to be carried off to Babylon. Then last week, we looked at Isaiah 40, which tells us about how God says, I'm going to comfort you. He's going to comfort the Jewish people while they're in captivity. And now here in chapter 41, we're hearing about a Persian king issuing a mandate that the Jews can return back home and rebuild the temple. Now, there's one important detail I've left out as we've talked about this. And God is talking about how, how through his power, he raised up Cyrus and gave him success as a king. But the timing of this is what we need to notice. So Isaiah started his ministry the year King Isaiah of Judah died, according to Isaiah 6.1. That was in 740 B.C. Do the math. Isaiah wrote about what King Cyrus was going to do 150 years before it happened. In other words, God is telling Israel about his power to raise up a king to serve his needs that would not even be born for a century. And yet, God talks about it here in the past tense. To God, mark it down, it's a done deal, even though it's not even going to happen for 150 years. Now, as I prepared for this, I reflected on how God used kings throughout the Middle East to serve his purposes, and the Bible tells us about several of them, and then how God used the Jewish people, his chosen people, to be in places of influence with these kings. Now, some of them you know about. Think about these. Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He interacted with Daniel, with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their Jewish names. We probably better know them, unfortunately, by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we read about them in Daniel chapters 1 through 4, where God saved them from the fiery furnace. And then there's Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, who came after, that Daniel interacted with in Daniel chapter 5. You might remember Daniel interpreted the handwriting on the wall for King Belshazzar, like, bad news, king, your kingdom's over tonight. Then there was Darius the Mede. The Medo-Persian Empire came in and took over Babylon, and he became the king, and he had Daniel in his service. He liked Daniel, but what happened? Some guys tricked him into making a decree. Nobody could pray to anybody but him. Daniel prayed to God. He was forced to throw Daniel in the lion's den, but what did he say? Daniel, your God's going to save you, and he did. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 6, and Darius is mentioned again in chapter 9. 
And then we talked about Cyrus. He interacted with Ezra. He's in Isaiah 41, the book of Ezra. Then King Xerxes. Remember King Xerxes? He took a wife named Esther, the Jewish girl, and her uncle Mordecai that were protected through interacting with Xerxes when, uh, when they were, there was a sentence of death on, on Mordecai. And then there's Artaxerxes, who is king in Persia, who issued another decree later that the walls of Jerusalem should re be rebuilt and sent Nehemiah and some people back to do that. So you can see throughout hundreds of years, God was at work through all these different kings and using his people to further his purposes. So how do the nations react to God's challenge, getting back to our passage? We're going to see that starting in verse 5. It says, The islands have seen it in fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward, and they help each other and say to their companions, Be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, It is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. So the nations see God's power, and they're in fear. And that makes sense. All throughout Scripture, people see God's power and they react with fear. Even John, Jesus' best friend when he walked on the earth, it says when he saw Jesus in all his glory in Revelation 1, he, he fell at his feet like a dead man. So the nations are in fear. So how do they deal with it? They bow the knee to God? No. Instead, they're going to make their own gods that are a lot more comfortable to deal with. They're going to make idols. That's why it's talking about metal workers and goldsmiths here. And then there's a little sarcasm. You're going to see that throughout this chapter. But here in verse 7, the idol makers are saying, oh, our work is good. But then someone has to nail down the idol so it doesn't fall over. Real powerful God, right? Now in verse 8, we're going to take a turn. God's been talking here. He's challenged to his enemies. But here he's going to shift and talk to Israel instead, starting in verse 8. It says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the friends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. So here, God's reminding the Jewish people of some very important things. Yes, they received a double portion of punishment for their sins. That We saw that last week in Isaiah 40, verse 2. But God here reminds them, they're still his chosen people. They're still the descendants of Abraham. God has not rejected them despite their captivity. And God is telling them, hey, despite this punishment that's going to come, don't be afraid. In the end, you're going to come out of this on top. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Now, yes, God's going to protect Israel from its enemies, but does that mean every one of the Jewish people is going to come out of the battles that are ahead unscathed? No. 
does that mean that all the Jewish people saw the promised restoration that God would bring and use Cyrus to bring? No. In fact, many Jewish people were born and died during those 70 years in Babylon and never saw these promises come to pass. Yet, God is faithful. And ultimately, God brought the Jewish people out of Babylon and back to their land. And God would uphold Israel with his righteous right hand. What does that right hand mean? The, the, hand, the hand of power. God did predict, protect many of his people through these times. We've talked about some of them, like Esther and Mordecai and Daniel and the three Hebrew children. Fiery furnaces and lions and death sentences were all thwarted by the power of God. And that leads us to verse 14. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland and fir and the cypress together so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. God is saying here to Israel, no matter what you face, no obstacle is too great. I'm the God of the impossible. And God says they're going to be able to crush the mountains and the wind will pick them up and blow it away like dust. Kind of sounds to me like what Jesus said in Mark 11, right? If we have faith and believe, we can ask a mountain to be thrown into the sea. And then God says he can make water flow in the desert and make all kinds of different trees grow there. So why is God doing this? Well, so everyone can consider and understand that God has done it so they can see his power to do the impossible at work. Have you ever seen something happen? It just humanly looks impossible and you find yourself saying, only God could have done that. I say it a lot. I pray for it. That God would work in a situation in a way that everyone would see it and say, nobody could have pulled that off but God. And so what's the result of all this? Verse 16 is just tucked in there. If you don't pay attention, you can just go right past it. Worship. Verse 16 says that people will see these things and rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Unlike God's enemies, they see his power, they're in fear. God's people celebrate his power at work. So now we're going to get to verse 21, and we're going to go back to the debate now. We're going to start talking back to God's enemies here. In 21, it says, Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's kings. Tell us, you idols, what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. 
Tell us what the future holds so we may, may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so we will be dismayed and filled with fear. You are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. So there's a little more sarcasm. God's shown his power over his enemies and his power to protect his people and sustain them. So now he's going, okay, enemies, start your stuff. Present your case. Let's see you tell the future. List your accomplishments. And he says, in fact, do anything, good or bad. But they can't. The idols are less than nothing. They have no achievements whatsoever. And their followers, the nations we talked about back at the beginning of the chapter, they're detestable for even thinking about following them. And that brings us to the final verses of chapter 41. God says this, I've stirred up one from the north, and he comes. One from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told us of this from the beginning so we could know, or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I looked, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give answer when I asked them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. So here's God's summation, his, his closing argument, as it, as it were. He says, now he brought a ruler from the north. Now, who is this? So back in verse 2, we saw Cyrus, a king from the east. Here he's talking about a king from the north. But it also says that this second king is going to come from the direction of the rising sun, the east again. So it's still talking about Cyrus. A couple of things to notice. First, that his kingdom was both north and east of Israel. And secondly, the Jewish people, they were used to, if conquerors came, they came from the north. So they're thinking of other kings coming from the north. So both directions here, it's still talking about Cyrus. Now, it's interesting that he says Cyrus calls, God says he calls by name. And he does use the Lord's name in his decree back in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. But while Cyrus knew about God, we don't see that he truly knew God. And God says to the idols, hey, you didn't predict this. We didn't hear anything out of you. Only I know what's going to happen 150 years from now. And only I have the power to make it happen. The idols, they all fail because they're false gods. They haven't done a thing. And God rests his case. So why is this recorded for us in Scripture? What, what's the significance of Isaiah 41? If you put yourself back in the position of Israel back then, I think it was intended to bring hope, right? Hey, punishment is coming. It's going to be tough. But God's going to be with you, Israel, through this entire process. And God's going to use a king from a country that doesn't know him to ultimately restore Israel and the temple worship. But for us today, I think the same thing, it brings us hope. Why? We serve a God with amazing power. Just like God said here, he did it, and we can look back on it and say, yep, God said that. 150 years later, it happened just like he said it was going to. 
Those who fail to learn from history will miss seeing God at work in the world. So now we've gone through the entire chapter and hopefully you understand better what it's saying. And that's all great, but okay, what does it mean for us here today? As a follower of Jesus, what can we glean from this? Well, there's four takeaways I'd like us to consider. The first is maybe the simplest. God is in control. God was in control of history back in Isaiah's day. And he's still in control, of course, of human history now. He still has the same power of the nations he did back when he raised up Cyrus to do his work in restoring Israel. So, folks, when you read about elections or impeachment or racial strife or injustice or wars, don't be in despair. Yeah, God gives man free will, and there's a lot of reaping of what we've sown and what happens in the world. I get that. But you know what? God's not sitting up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, I never saw that one coming. (laughs) Now, God may orchestrate some things. I think there's times when God sits back and goes, Okay, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. And he, and he lets his hands off of it. But make no mistake, God is on the throne of the universe and his will is ultimately going to be done in the world. No person, no organization, no nation, no leader is any match for God. That's the whole point of Isaiah 41. So when you watch the news or you're reading on the internet or whatever, you're seeing bad things happening, when things look dire, remember, God is on the throne of the universe. It's not hopeless. And a little aside here, don't believe everything you read or you see online, okay? Wow, talk about an agenda at work. I'm just going to speak for me. You know, a few years back, I spent a lot of time watching all this stuff and the news and digging into politics and all this kind of thing. And I just found it was really discouraging. (laughs) And I began to realize my time would be a lot better spent doing ministry or something else. It was just a waste. Because you know what? God needs to be God and all that. (laughs) Not me, but that's me. So like Pastor Steve said last week, God is big. Bigger than we can even imagine. God has all the power necessary to work his purposes in the world. Those of you who have been around New Life for a long time, we used to say around here, how big is God? Big enough. That's right. Second, God is working for the good of his people. Now, Israel is straight from God. And, you know, when you think about the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, they really, after David and Solomon, it was all downhill. They had a whole series of bad kings that didn't follow God. And they were destroyed, and those ten tribes were scattered and lost. And Judah, the southern kingdom, they were 50-50 with their leaders, but they still ended up paying for their rebellion by having the temple destroyed and being carried off to Babylon. But we see in Isaiah 40 and 41 that God had the ultimate good of the Jewish people in mind. Despite their disobedience, despite a pretty serious punishment, God had plans to restore his relationship with his chosen people. And we see God affirming that in verses 8 through 13. He's telling him, hey, just because this happened, it doesn't mean you're not my chosen people anymore. I've still chosen you. God's a God of grace and mercy. And guess what, folks? Not just in the New Testament, 
Now, it's easy for us to say, well, that was Israel back then. What's it got to do with me? Think about it this way. The Jewish people were God's chosen ones by birth. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, all of us can be adopted into God's family. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Yeah, all of us are sinful and rebellious, just like the Jewish people were. Or is that just me? Yet Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect human life, the life none of us could live, was sentenced to death unjustly, yet willingly died to take the punishment each of us deserve for our sin. And he didn't stay dead. He rose back to life three days later to defeat sin and death and make a way for us to spend eternity with him. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know, that's not just some panacea. Everything's going to work out. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this. God takes the bad things, things we look at as bad, and he turns them for good. He did that with the Jewish people through their sin and their captivity and then their ultimate restoration. And he's still doing it in the world today. Number three. God is pursuing a relationship with each of us. And you know what? When you look at history... If you want to give all of human history a one-line summary, there it is right there. God is pursuing a relationship with each of us. Right from the Garden of Eden all the way up till today, God has always wanted a relationship with mankind. Now, we looked at Genesis a few weeks back. There was this perfect relationship between God and man in the garden, but sin entered the picture, and God's perfect. He's holy. He doesn't have any sin, and he can't tolerate being around sin. So sin broke that perfect relationship between God and man. But ever since, God's been at work to restore the relationship. To do so would take the sacrifice of innocent blood. Now, I want you to hang with me on this. Remember, several months back, we talked about Luke 24. And in verse 27, Jesus is talking to these two travelers on the road. And he said, all of Scripture was about him. And all they had then was the Old Testament. So that means Isaiah 41 is about Jesus. How? Well, there's a totally pragmatic way. Think about this. For the prophecies to be fulfilled about Jesus, the Jewish people would have to be back in Israel. I'm going to give you an example, Micah 5.2. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. For Jesus to come out of Bethlehem, the Jews are going to have to be not living in Babylon. Okay, that's a very practical way. But I think there's a more subtle way here, and I think it's the more important one, and I don't want us to miss it. So God used this king, Cyrus, to restore Israel to their land and resume their worship that centered around the temple. This king didn't even know God. But he was a tool through which God enacted his desire 
to restore the rich relationship the Jewish people have with him through their sacrificial practices and temple worship, okay? It's just a picture of another king, the ultimate king who will be sent from the very throne room of heaven, the perfect king, fully God, fully man, who will restore the relationship between God and man that was broken by sin. This king will willingly fulfill God's plan to restore the relationship between God and all mankind, even at great personal cost. His innocent blood poured out on a torturous Roman cross. And when this king did his work, he could say, it is finished. The perfect blood sacrifice was paid once and for all that allowed God and man to have a relationship once again. 1 John 2, verse 2 talks about it. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And that leads me to the last point. Just don't know about God. Know God. Cyrus knew about God. He did what God needed him to do. He used God's name in his decree. But he didn't bow the knee to God. He didn't have the relationship with God that we're talking about. You might be here today and you're going, I don't know a thing about God. Or maybe you know about him, but there's never been a time in your life when you invited Jesus to come into your life so that you could have that relationship that he died to make possible. Jesus said this in Revelation 3.20, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, eating here isn't about food. It's a picture of a relationship, right? When you eat with someone, you're, you're talking, you're having this relationship. That's what this is talking about. Jesus wants to come in and have this relationship with you. He's knocking at the door of your life. Are you going to let him in? He's too much of a gentleman to bust down the door. You've got to open it. How? Romans 10, verse 9, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Maybe you're here today and you're going, you know, I'd like to open up the door of my life to Jesus. In a few minutes, our prayer partners will be down here on the sides in the front. If you'd like to understand more about that, come talk to them. They'd love to talk to you about it. You can have that personal relationship with Jesus. God's in control. Take it to the bank. And know that he's working for the good of his people. And he paid a dear price, the ultimate price, to have a personal relationship with every one of us. Let's bow our heads, okay? Now again, if you want to open the door of your heart to a personal relationship with God, come down and talk to a prayer partner. I'd love to pray with you. And for that matter, if you have a prayer need, it doesn't matter what it is, they would love to pray with you. And it's all confidential. But for some of us, I just have this feeling today there's a lot of us that have something big in our lives 
that we need to hand over to God and let him be in control of it. Maybe it's a situation where you need that big God to come through. Maybe it's something you just got to lay down and say, God, it's yours. I can't, I can't do anything about this. If you have a need like that, you can come talk to a prayer partner. But I'm going to invite you to do this. Just come down to the front, the stage here, around this platform. And maybe individually, maybe as a family, and pray about it. Use this time as, as just a time of commitment. Nothing great about coming down front doesn't do anything except it's just a symbol of saying, God, I'm giving this over to you. So let's pray. God, I just uh, ask today that as we wrap up our time together, you're a big God who controls kings and nations. We know that. But I think sometimes we, we it's easier for us to acknowledge that than it is that you're in control of all the details of our lives. God, I know, because I know some of the folks right in this room that I've been praying for, they have some big needs. They need you to come through. God, there's two of them right on my mind right now. You know exactly what they are. God, I'm reminding you again, intervene. Work in them. Do what only you can do. Show yourself strong so nobody will mistake that you did it. And God, with all these folks, some, I, some folks hear that, I just, I, we don't, I know what's going on in their life, but you do. And God, I'm sure there's, there's hundreds of situations where you've got to show yourself strong. It's the only way. Move in those, God. Help us to let go of the things that we're trying to deal with and let you do your work. God, we, it's not easy to do that. We ask you to just help us. Pry our fingers off from around it if we need to. And God, may we take this time and, and commit ourselves to that as we worship. We ask this now in Jesus' name, amen.